Rest, recover, rise with 4.5 CBD oil, the world's first certified 0% THC CBD oil. Welcome to the podcast to Tristan Gooley. Tristan's a best-selling author whose book, uh, How to Read Water, Clues and Patterns from Puddles to the Sea, has an excerpt featured in Wavelength. Forthcoming issue 259, out October 31st. His other books include The Natural Navigator, The Walker's Guide to Outdoor Clues and Signs, and Wild Signs and Star Paths. Tristan has done a transat single-handed, flown solo across the Atlantic, studied natural navigation with the Tuareg, the Bedouin, and the Dayak peoples in some of the harshest environments on Earth. And he runs courses on natural navigation. Tristan, you've been quoted as saying navigation is the most beautiful, subtle, underrated art in the world. And my first question is, why is that? And also, please tell us a bit about the path that you've taken in coming to realise that. Thanks, Paul. Uh, yeah, I, I came into uh, a reading of the, the natural world from a, a slightly unusual, well, uh, to be honest, a very unusual um, uh, angle, which was that I love journeys and I, from a young age, I love putting them together. I was I was one of those people who wasn't that obsessed by kit. A lot of the, and I, I forgive me, but I call them tribes because of my work, my work takes me into working with all sorts of groups of people all around the world. And I, I call them tribes and sometimes they are literary tribes, but more often than not, they're tribes with particular interests. They might be sailors, in your case, surfers. Uh, they might be hikers. They might be climbers. They might be kayakers. And the, the tribe is, 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 always, is always interesting to me. But the thing I noticed from a very young age is that I loved all of this, this, you know, perspective on the outdoors, but I wasn't interested in kit, which made me quite, you know, all my life I've kind of felt that I didn't necessarily put a perfect tick in any one box. So it made me kind of nomadic. It made me kind of try one thing and then another. And the one thing that really kept my interest and kept me, um, you know, trying to forge these journeys was, was the skill of shaping them. So the, the thing that was getting me from A to B never actually held my interest for, for you know, never got me passionate. It was, it was the shaping of the line between A and B. And so, I mean, it took an awful lot of journeys before I realized that, that it was the word navigation that, that brought that together. So um, that, that, you know, took me on lots and lots of journeys, learning the conventional art of navigation. But then somewhere in my twenties, I can never pinpoint when it was, it was, nearer the mid than the beginning or the end of my 20s, I realized that the journeys were getting enormous and the kit was getting ridiculous. I mean, just to give you one example, you have to stare at a whole load of um, uh, instrumentation to, to fly an aircraft legally in certain situations, like, like across the North Atlantic. So you can actually do what, on one level, is a fantastic and incredible experience. And legally, you're forced to stare at computers and dials and things like that. So that, that kicked me back to what, what had stirred my interest as a child, which was connecting with the world. And that led me to the wonderful subject of natural navigation. So realizing that crossing uh, one mile of um, woodland or, or understanding how to get a, you know, maybe a dinghy uh, from one, one bay to another, just using the feel of the wind or the signs in the, in the land, the sky or the water. So I went from doing massive journeys to short journeys. And, and so my whole life has been about shaping journeys, but the last 20 years have been more focused on the, the signs that make it possible to, do, to, to shape these journeys using the natural world. Speaking of those signs and, and the things you teach, a lot of the material you put out, for example, telling which way is south based on the way that trees grow or, or plants grow, a number of other things. These aren't, this isn't really something new in terms of we're not pushing boundaries of 
it's human skill or insight. This is something that our ancestors would have would have known and needed to know for you know millennia in order to survive. And I guess the question is, why should we why should we get them back? Is it is it something just sort of quirky, or is there a little bit more to it than that? Yeah, it's, it's a really fair question, and and I don't I never really start my case by saying these things are necessary to get through a day. Uh, but then a lot of the most interesting things in life aren't aren't necessary in a purely pragmatic sense. So we can get through a day without culture. You know, you can get through a week, a year, you can get through your life without picking up a book, listening to music, seeing a film, looking at a sculpture, watching dance. All of those things could be described as unnecessary, but they are, you know, a large part of what makes life fascinating, rich, rewarding and worthwhile. So I see what I do, the reading of signs, a cultural activity as much as a practical thing. So the, pra- the fact it works practically, practically is important um, because it isn't, this isn't stuff that is invented. As you say, it's been around a long, long time, you know, as long as we've been moving around on, on the planet. But the, 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 the working, it, it's like a craft. And an, a, a good analogy I often find is food. So there's a lot of artistry and craft that goes into making good food, even when it's done very simply, and sometimes especially when it's done simply in a pure sense. And that is only culturally valid if it works. If you end up with a plate of food that you can put in front of somebody or enjoy with with somebody, it's the same in natural navigation in the sense that these signs have to work. It's not theoretical. It's not. It's not an academic paper. It's not. Um, it's you know, using using a, a clue in a cloud is, is telling me something, it's helping me shape that journey. Are there other ways of doing it that are more efficient? Yes. Um, smartphones are amazing. But a microwave's pretty amazing as well. So that's 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 where I'm at, is that I will never make the argument that that you you need these things to to get through a week or a month. The argument I make is is life becomes more rewarding, more uh, richer, more worthwhile if you know these things. In terms of like outdoor movement, you know, the, the last ten years or so, or maybe even slightly more, the sort of survival part of it, or the you think of bushcraft, has, has become quite a big thing. I think people like Ray Mears teaching those sort of skills. With what you do, is it rather than sort of taking on nature in that slightly more sort of adversarial way? Is it is it more about taking it in or being in tune? Is it a sort of a sense of fulfilment uh, rather than necessarily kind of beating the odds? Yeah, definitely. And, and like, like lots of people, when I was younger, I did have a, 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 you know, we all have these experiences, we get a little bit older, and hopefully a little bit wiser. I can genuinely remember thinking, right, I've done a a 4,000 foot hill, now it's a 5,000, then it's a 6,000. And those numbers just kept on going up until I, you know, the penny dropped. I mean, this is ridiculous. I'm I'm ticking boxes here. Um, And, and, you know, I don't, I never, ever sort of you know, look down my nose at people who are doing incredible sort of physical things, but it is it is a different thing. So the two things used to overlap historically. Explorers used to have to tune into their environment, whereas now there's there's a slight there's a branching. There are people who are tuning to their environment, and you can do that without without traveling more than 100 meters. And there are endurance athletes and survival specialists and things like that, and they are all really good, valid, fascinating areas, but they're not the same thing. So you can make a map using nature, uh, looking out of a window in a in a skyscraper. You know, you can you can notice a hundred things about the sky that nobody's ever seen before from a, from an inner city uh, position. But if we if we do um, get the the wonderful opportunity of of seeing sort of rich landscapes, then the the possibilities multiply, and we end up with something which is 
not not a 3D map, not a 4D map. We we are we are using every single possible sense, bringing everything together, and experiencing um, landscapes in the way that our ancestors did. And dare I say it, potentially even in a in a in a richer, more fascinating way, because we have access to to knowledge that our ancestors didn't. Twenty twenty is obviously um, a unique. Yeah, let's put it that way. Travel's slowed down. People are kind of refocusing a lot more on what's around them. Are people sort of pushed to what you do as a a means of kind of a therapy from screens and consumerism or uh, being generally unfulfilled? Or is it the the lure of the natural world pulling them in um, or a bit of both? Yes, I I sometimes feel a bit guilty because there have been two... um, very different crises in the last sort of 15 years was the financial one and and now there's there's covid and they've both uh helped me in terms of my work and i do feel a bit guilty about that i try not to but um it, you know in the first one just very briefly uh in a nutshell people went from oh we've tried talking about property for for five years and actually that's that doesn't work that doesn't make us happy and it sort of you know it it, it implodes eventually um and and more recently uh more more sort of serious threat in terms of health. Um, uh, although I think they both had had interesting and and sometimes um, worrying impacts on on mental health, but but very different. Yeah, more recently that's certainly been the case. I mean, lockdown, in a sense, uh, for the first time in in history, a government was effectively saying, "Don't go anywhere. Your your entertainment and your you know your." access to interesting activities is limited to uh, a few hundred square meters and that uh, i mean i i had quite a lot of media getting in touch with me sort of saying that's what you do isn't it I, and i said yes and it was a surreal situation where suddenly people were it wasn't a sort of theoretical exercise it wasn't and i i get involved in conversations about connecting with nature and i've written a book how to connect with nature and and what i find is that if you say to people things like be mindful, it's good for you. Connect with nature, you know, that's what you should do. It gets nowhere. Nobody, you know, we are all we are all individuals and we, we have a kind of our own personal culture which will rebel against that kind of diktat. But with my work, what I'm doing is I'm not saying do those things because I or somebody else is saying with them. I'm actually saying something very different, which is, you know, find 20 different ways of working out where you are by, by looking at a tree or a patch of water or a beach or a cloud. Um, and our brain has evolved to enjoy that challenge. So what happens is you get, I don't know the, I don't know brain chemistry well enough to know what exactly is happening, but I do know that we watch things like murder mysteries and we, we read crime fiction and, and we do puzzles like Sudoku because our brain likes to solve puzzles. And it's the same thing in nature. If you say to somebody, look at some wildflowers, it's good for you. You know, it's the same as same as telling anyone to change their behaviour. It doesn't have any effect at all. I mean, it's almost proven to have no effect. But if you say to somebody, these flowers here will tell you that you're going to see water on the other side of that hill, there's a, there's a natural kind of like, ah, you're giving me a, a key to solve a, to, to unlock something here, to solve a puzzle. I might just have a go at that. And then you get a reward sensation in the brain because we have evolved to solve these puzzles. Everything that we think um, our brain is is, you know, um, good at in a modern sense all stems from the fact that none of us as individuals would be here if we hadn't survived by learning how to solve puzzles in our environment moving on to reading water i guess people that maybe aren't 
so experienced around the coast or the sea often see it as something that's fraught with danger. I mean, obviously we, we, can't, we can't breathe underwater, so there's, there's a danger in itself. Um, but the coasts also are our natural environment in lots of ways, much more so than probably like the high mountains. Um, how do we sort of balance that sort of fear or respect of the sea with that curiosity and playfulness to be in and around it? And, and maybe which one of those two was kind of informed you with your skills and the knowledge that you used to write that book? Was it just getting in it and messing around or were you trying to avoid catastrophe? Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating cultural thing. And I discovered, uh, I was around about the age of 19 and, and, and backpacking. And I, I discovered that it is a purely cultural perspective. There are cultures that fear the sea and love the mountains. And I think parts of Indonesia, that's true. I think I, I, think I came across that in Bali and Lombok. Um, where, um, but then there are other cultures, and it's not to do with being an island. It's, it's more complex and rich than that. So the Pacific Islanders, the sea was uh, an opportunity to, to socialize, to, you know, for survival, for food, for things like that. So it became revered. And so we, we can all sort of take our own position there. We aren't inherently pushed one way or the other. It is a cultural thing. I think you, you'll know from, um, you know, your, your, your tribe that if, if there are a group of you who are talking about the, the water in a positive way, it makes you feel positive about it. If, if there's an accident or something bad happens, then, then of course, we, we shift. So I do think there's a, there's a personal choice there. I mean, I did... Um, a fair amount of uh, practical sort of survival training when I was when I was learning to sail, and you learn the you learn that I often talk about characters because when it becomes abstract, I think we become distanced from the natural phenomena. But the character, you know, that, that I was taught most about was actually temperature. So, um, and, then, and then there are counterintuitive things like the, the coast is um, an inherently sort of in water terms violent place. Um, I mean, surfing would be impossible without it, of course. But as a sailor, you, you have to learn slightly counterintuitive things, as in if things are going wrong, you head away from land. Um, the instinct is, is to try and grab hold of land, you know, get, get near the rocks. But historically, people worked out quite quickly that that's the way you lose your life. So the, the, there are certain, I think there are certain sort of characters you learn and behaviours of how to deal with them, which which sounds a bit a bit kind of nebulous. But if you if you you know, take preparation so that you are not going to uh, become cold and hypothermic. That That's a character that you no longer look at with fear. It's kind of like, yeah, I know you. Um, a, a bit like we might do with certain individuals. It's kind of like, you know, certain people you might might hang out with occasionally. You go like, yeah, in this situation, you're a lot of fun. And in this situation, I have to be a bit careful. So that's that's um, that's sort of how, how I think I, I approach it in that sense. But I don't um, respect not fear is I think what, what you know the mantra that works for all of us isn't it in terms of water like a friend who's okay in the pub but just as long as they're not on the Stella for example <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. anything but Stella alright that'll do it for part one coming up in part two we talk to Tristan about his book How to Read Water and some more surf specific stuff and that is coming out, of course, in Wavelength issue 259, which is coming out on the 31st of October. Great time to subscribe to the mag. Go to wavelengthmag.com and check out the shop. See some of our fantastic subscription offers, two premium print editions of the magazine, plus very special gift offers at the moment. We've got a great one running with our friends at Uppercut Deluxe. Theme of issue 259 is unseen or unsung. And we've got some really cool features coming up 
in that magazine. So don't forget to subscribe. Moving on to surfing, sort of seen as closely associated with sports like snowboarding and skateboarding, I guess because of what you what you kind of look like when you're doing it physically. But to me, I've always felt it's much more like something like fishing or even bird watching, as in you wait around a long time for something to happen. And when that thing happens, that's the kind of payoff. So whether it's, you know, if you, if you surf two hours, you might realistically be standing up for three minutes. And that would be a good a good return. Um, and so I suppose the question here is from what you've seen of surfers or, or any experience you've had yourself with surfing, would, would it be fair to say that the ability to read nature and to read these clues and signs from the sea and from the weather is key to sort of maximizing that experience and maximizing that enjoyment? Yes. I, I have to start with the premise that, that I have tried to become a great surfer on many occasions. And, uh, and I, I never got there, and, and but I think that has that has. Um, um, I'm I'm only joking about the great bit. I've tried to surf, is what I've tried to do. But as a youngster, there's that that kind of ambition that you know. And again, it's a slightly immature thing, and I've seen it in myself in in lots of different disciplines, and I've seen it in others in surfing and other disciplines as well. That when you're very young, it, it's all about you know um, trying to do extraordinary things in a physical sense, and then as we get to know what we're doing a bit more, the the, there's a more profound approach, which is the, the experience is not about um, size or, 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 or crude physical attributes. But yes, I, I do think that fishing is a, is a very good analogy. And I think in, in the book, How to Read Water, there's, there's a chapter which on one level would appear to have nothing to do with surfing, but on another level does. I mean, there are, there are chapters that are much more directly tied to, to the world of surfing about waves and things. But, but the, the chapter called The Rise is all about how... A, a fly fisher can work out the exact moment that a fish will come to the surface of the water and where. And to do that, it is not just about studying water. It is about studying the fish, of course, but studying the insects, studying the flow of water, studying the, the micro landscape where an individual rock is, studying the way the, the, the trees and the sky are related to that patch of water. Because if a cloud goes in front of the sun, certain insects fall out of the water, where they land, uh, they will then be corralled by the flow of water, which will be dictated by the shape of the rocks. And so bringing all of those pieces together, the animal life, the sky, the, the, um, the botanical nature, the, bringing all of these pieces together allows you to predict the rise, which is the, the, the kissing sensation of when the fish comes to the surface. And that, I, I think, and a lot of my work is not, I am not pretending that I'm an expert fly fisher, and I'm certainly not pretending I'm an expert surfer. What I'm, what I'm effectively doing in, in this work is taking expertise from all these different areas and sort of saying, this is the level that we can, um, and I'm not talking about in a competitive sense here either, although there will be some overlaps there. If we are tuned to all of the signs and clues in an environment, we will get to see, um, it's almost like a, um, I was about to say tunnel, but that has a different meaning in your world, doesn't it? But we, we get to see, you know, a light, we get to see through things and we get to see the moment things come together. It becomes harder to articulate that moment, which is why most of my writing is more practical. You know, what I'm effectively saying is look at these 12 things, practice looking at them, and then something interesting happens. And the, the something interesting is for the reader to experience I, I effectively, I'm giving them a map and, and, you know, they can go and find it. Just thinking about the surfing experience and the things that we pick up sort of inadvertently, um, for example, lining up 
uh, sort of be in a certain place in the, in the light. We'd use the equivalent of like a transit line if you line up this rock with that tree or something like that to know you're in the right place. These are sort of things that surfers probably pick up without without realizing they're doing. They're not doing it for the sake of it. It's to be in the best place and and uh, several other things. If you can see the wind picking up on the water surface and things like that out of the sea, but just getting away from the actual surf zone itself, just more generally and more broadly, particularly through the wind, because I think that's really interesting. I just wonder if you could explain a few of the things that people could, that are all around us that maybe people don't realise, I mean, the, the, about the wind changing or picking up suddenly, a few things to do with clouds, just a few things that we could maybe tune into a little bit more, not specifically in the lineup itself, but broadly around to do with the wind. Yes, and I, I think uh, the approach with wind and water is, is similar to all the other areas I work with, which is we, we start by breaking it down into very manageable sort of levels. So on the kind of macro, big, uh, what, what weather people call the kind of synoptic level, we, we, come, we become familiar with the idea that a, a, a depression, a frontal system is going to go through and we get used to those signs. And, and within that world we start to recognise the signs that that's happening. So we, at the, the very earliest signs are actually at night. You'll notice the, the stars twinkling you know, slightly more as the moisture levels in the upper atmosphere um, grow. The next thing is, is a bit of cirrus, uh, cirrus stratus, uh, and then the clouds basically thicken and lower and the, the wind backs. And, and these sorts of things are the, the, the way into the, the, the big scale. Then at the opposite end of the scale, we... Um, we look at the way the wind has uh, a relationship in the same way the water does with, uh, with the landscape. So it's very, very easy uh, to actually get a 10-day forecast for the other side of the world, of course. We can say, okay, there's going to be a southwesterly nine days from now on this, on this beach in this part of the world. But what the computers can't do and what our ancestors could do and, and what I uh, try and share with people with my work is, is, is a reading of the landscape which allows you to see what. So if you have a southwesterly come in, the, um, you know, an individual uh, tree uh, several hundred metres away from you is going to change the wind behaviour in the spot you're in. And it's going to do it in a mixture of predictable and hard to predict ways. So what we find is that eddies, um, both in water and wind, it is very, very easy to predict that there will be one it is beyond science and human experience to be able to tell you to work out exactly what it will do. So what we end up doing is saying, okay, we know, for example, that we've got a, a southwesterly uh, today and that, that we're expecting because of the signs we've seen in the sky that to maybe back from southwest to south. Ah, there is, um, there's a rocky outcrop uh, more, more out to the south. So we should expect not just the direction of the wind to change, but its, its behaviour, it will whip into, into eddies, which will then have an impact on the water. So what we find in that, in that sort of um, very, very sort of basic example is that whereas somebody who's looked at a forecast will go, OK, we're expecting the wind to, to back from um, southwest to south, somebody who's read the landscape a little bit will, will pick up the direction change, but they will also understand the, the character change, the fact that it is more turbulent. So we get things called, you know, well, I nickname them rebel winds, which is where the wind just suddenly starts to be coming from the wrong, in inverted commas, direction. And that is very simply an eddy. But it, it is very confusing if you're not used to reading those signs. So if you sort of go, wait a minute, I was expecting it to go from southwest to south, but, but suddenly I've got a gust hitting me in my face from the, from the north. What on earth's going there? The whole weather system hasn't changed. Um, ah, okay, it is related to, to, the, to the lump of rock south of me. Um, 
so yeah i mean it's, it's a lot of this stuff is very visual so it hopefully you get the idea I think. yeah absolutely and i think the reason yeah like you said the reason why wind is interesting is because if you think about three kind of variables in the day surfing of the swell the tide and the wind the, the swell will drop off or pick up to a certain degree throughout a day but not you know to a huge except maybe something like hawaii could go from flat to huge in one day but broadly speaking it's relatively of the same order the tide is moving but it's very predictable we know exactly what's going to do and the wind is the sort of the outlier that sort of vagrant and and yeah absolutely those little local i mean every surfer will each day sort of moan about all oh, the forecast got it wrong because they said it was going to be offshore until lunchtime and and invariably you get these local eddies and things like that but i I'm particularly interested if I just think about surfing on the, the south coast of, of England um, or even the south coast of Wales that can often be sort of a sweeter spot in terms of the passage of our depressions that come over um, after the cold front's gone over. And generally, we, if we think of kind of stormy conditions, the wind blowing towards us from the southwest or the west, bringing waves. And then when the front goes over, we, we'll get a little bit of a few hours or maybe like one tide of good conditions where the wind's a little bit more northwest maybe with like clearer skies before the wind will back again and, and, and go on short. I was just wondering if you had any particular tips to do with fronts or things people might try and pick up if they're trying to time, you know, if they've got another hour or two hours or, you know, the rest of the morning of kind of good conditions, things like that. Anything to do with the passage of fronts over our coast that you could tell us about? Um, I'll be honest here. No, in terms of, I can't give you fixed timings. There are, there are general ones, which, which, um, but, but the, each, each front has its own character and each, each frontal system has its own character. It will move at its own speed. So the only, the only sort of general rules we can follow are the signs that a, a front is a, approaching are giving you clues to the general passage. So if we go from Cirrus to Cirrus Stratus to, to um, Alta Stratus and all, all the others faster than we are expecting, then the, the, the warm front, the warm sector, and then the cold front will go through you know faster than we are expecting as well. But it is... I actually think it's um, it's it's perhaps unhelpful to be too mechanical about those things. It's again, I keep coming back to this idea of characters. They are we can recognise the general in the same way we might recognise an animal. You know, we go ah, I recognise that shape. That's a horse. But we, it, it's not from my perspective the right approach to go like, well, I, I know exactly how horses behave. So when you run, you're going to run at this speed, and when you jump, you're going to jump like this. Yeah. It's, each each system has its own character, but it follows those. Um, uh, and then as soon as we, we get on top of that, we, we start finding it's occluded and all sorts of other things, which, which up the ante a bit, but, but yes, um, I think the, the, the signs that, that a certain change is about to happen are, are fairly, um, uh, fairly easy for everyone to pick up. Uh, and then through those, we can get, we can get an idea of the character we've got. Is this something that's, that's, you know, raffling through, or is it something really taking its time? But beyond that, it's, um, each one is an individual. Sure. Well, on that, actually, and, and speaking of animals, um, there's something I wanted to ask you about. I listened to a podcast that you did with Daniel Vitalis. Uh, it's an American. He's a hunter and a, a rewilder. Um, and you were talking about humans sort of tapping into something sort of subconscious where they create a map. If you spend enough time in the woodlands, for example, you can kind of, you see a squirrel. And, I mean, you can explain this a lot better than I can, but after a while, you'll realize what that squirrel's going to do. He's going to stop and look at you, and he's going to run around the back of a tree, climb up a bit, peer out again, and, and then you won't see him again until he's up on the branches. And that got me onto thinking about a few 
some things in surfing, maybe some mythology, a bit of folklore. Um, there's a famous surfer from the 70s called Sean Thompson, who had an expression, time slows down in the tube. Um, and there's also this general sort of mythology that some of the great surfers can bend waves to their will or they can preempt certain things happening on a wave. And I, and I thought this, there might be certainly a link between those two things, between being so experienced in something that you can almost, it, it feels like you, maybe you're making it happen because you're predicting it with, with a pretty high degree of certainty. And I just wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that kind of the ancient mind essentially. And that's that more sort of wild inner, inner sort of experience that we have. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's um, something which puzzled and fascinated me for years. And so I went and did quite a lot of research into it and I, I, I go into everything open-minded. I don't want to, I don't want to find bullshit, but I, I do have that antenna tuned, you know, is, is, and I don't, have a, a strong interest in people who say amazing things are achievable, but I can't tell you how to do them, you know? Um, so my, my, because in a, in some senses I'm an educator, my, my world is, is that bit in between? Is there a genuine goal there? Yes. Is there a, a path we can find to it? Yes. What is that path? How can I share that? So in the example you're talking about, we can take um, an expert in any area and if you spend time with them, they will we, they will do things which seem almost incredible. There are different labels for it, a sixth sense, whatever we want to call it. The label's not that important. But what they're actually doing is, is putting lots and lots of uh, signs together to create an intuitive reading of a situation. That's all it is. So if we, if we keep it very close to home, and then we'll move through a couple of different examples, if um, somebody had never seen a telephone before, like a, a landline before, and... Uh, they came and spent a week with you and uh, on day two the phone goes at midday and you pick it up and you go hi yeah, and stuff like that um, and then three days later the phone goes at, at 11 p.m and you go oh i don't know that because nobody you know would call you on a landline at 11 p.m unless something bad's happened so in that very simple example you've got very very simple environment with very very simple cues the only thing that's changed there is the time but if somebody had no idea about telephones they go like you're doing something weird there how have you got this psychic sense that there's something not particularly good at the end of the phone call um uh in in nature if we take the squirrel example you mentioned it is quite possible to walk into, and again, we'll keep it, keep it, you know, a nice sort of tame environment. We don't have to be in the middle of nowhere here. We can walk into a city park. You can tap someone on the shoulder and you say, you see that squirrel there? We're going to take one step towards it. When we do that, it's going to go up onto its hind legs, up onto its haunches, excuse me. Then we're going to take one more step and it's going to run past those two trees we see there and then go up the oak, the third one we see. It's going to go up around the back of the oak it's then going to stick its head out from the right-hand side. And then when that happens, they look at you like you're, like you're a witch doctor. <laughs> and actually what you've done is you, you've put some very, very simple signs together and patterns of behavior. So the going up on the haunches is the alert sign. It, all, all prey animals typically will raise their head in some way to say, um, to, to give them a better view and, and, and soundscape of what's around them. It's just good evolutionary sense. But it's also a sign to their, to their conspecifics and other animals out there because a lot of animals form a sort of team neighbourhood watch scheme. The, the birds and mammals are helping each other. Deer, squirrels, birds around me, they're all kind of like saying, he's, he's coming through now. Um, but, but in the squirrel case, um, we take the alert behaviour means that if we do one more, so the one step triggers it into alert behaviour, another step will trigger it into flight behaviour. 
And flight behavior, if we're not tuned to that animal, appears random. But actually, animals can't afford to be random. It's just not a great survival strategy. So they will then go towards their refuge, the place that is safe. We all know that squirrels like to run up trees. They do that because it's safe for them. They will go round the far side of the tree because that is safer. But then they don't. They pass the first two trees, by the way, because they want to network. So the first few trees were isolated trees. And you look at them and you go, I know how squirrels behave. In its, in its flight to refuge, the squirrel is not going to choose an isolated tree because that's postponing the problem. You can stand at the bottom of the tree, um, you know, having a nice leisurely time. It's got to come down at some point. Whereas if the tree is networked and there are branches off to other ones, that's the, that's the one in, in the squirrel's mental map that it's going to go for. So that, you know, in that sense, you can apply it to every animal. If you, same thing with a, a fallow deer. You, you tap someone on the shoulder and you whisper, you say, you know, one step its head goes up, Second step, it's going to run up that hill there to that wood. And then when it does it, you, 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 know, you can either sort of not explain and, and revel in the fact that you're seen as, as some sort of a shaman, or you can say, well, it's very simple. Fallow deer, you know, their flight behavior is uphill and their refuge is woods. You know, but it's up to you whether you explain these things or not. When it comes to absolutely any medium, you know, I mentioned fly fishes. It's the same. It'll be the same as surfing. And my work is not about... Um, you know, being arrogant to sort of say that I have reached that level as as a you know a deer expert or a fly fisher or certainly not a surfer, but my work is sort of understanding that it is achievable. Then talking to the experts, distilling what those signs are, and then sharing them. So it, it is, you know, if somebody says, you know, something extraordinary is about to happen, and it happens, and they do have experience, uh, even if they can't articulate it. You know, they are using an unconscious part of their brain to sift through all the signs. Winter's on its way. Um, I was wondering if you can offer us, it looks like it's been quite a long winter in terms of people probably aren't jetting off to um, various exotic places they, they might have had planned or might do traditionally. Um, any, any tips for surfers or, or just folk in general heading out to the coast, things to look out for? I mean, we, we spend a lot of, quite a lot of our time waiting out for the right tide. I just wonder if there are little, little, little exercises people could do or little things they could test themselves on or, or skills to practice while they're out on the coast. Uh, I think some of the patterns on the beach itself, particularly if you're you know, lucky enough to have a sandy beach, because sand, is, um, sand and snow are the greatest kind of tracking environments. And everybody would have seen prints of, of animals and people, and you can have a lot of fun with those. But actually, you can track water on sand. So... Um, Every single time water passes over, over sand, mud or silt, it leaves footprints. And the shape in the sand will actually tell you the story of what the water has been doing. Um, and it's just another way. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say some of these signs have a direct relevance to surf conditions, but they are telling you what the water in a broader sense has been doing. So, for example, if water flows one way over sand, it, it creates um, uh, ripples which, which are asymmetrical. They're shallow on one side, steep on the other. If it's tidal flow, it goes one way, it goes, you know, the tide rises and then and then flows out again, you get flat top ripples where where you've got sort of a flat top and then two two sort of slopes on either side. And there are half a dozen patterns like that, which are quite fun to look for. The other thing is on the other side, if we kind of zoom out a bit and look up a bit, it, are the clouds is uh, I, I think a lot of people who have an interest in the outdoors are tuned to some level of cloud watching. But there are always levels we can, you know, very simple steps of raising that. Just starting to notice that the, the clouds map the land, for example, and, and how they do that. So the Pacific Islanders, who are a great inspiration and source for a lot of my work, particularly in how to read water, are 
their lives depended. So it's not a fanciful notion. It's not some, something that's like, hey, this is a bit kind of poetical and fun. We can actually sort of, you know, see the, see the clouds and mac in the land. This is, this is life or death stuff for the culture who were experts at this. And we get puffy, cumulus clouds above land when the, uh, when the sun's warmed it more than the sea. Uh, but within that, there's an entire code. So the, you can actually map what the wind is doing from the shape of that cloud. You can tell what the, the surface of the land is like from the colour at the bottom of that cloud. Um, I mean, the Pacific Islands even went to as far as sort of describing uh, eyebrow clouds, the way that the clouds form and then break into two because of the thermal rising off the ground. Um, and all of these things are interconnected. Uh, sometimes it's, it's, it's two or three steps from the pattern in the sand or the cloud back to the, back to the behaviour of the sea. But my work is all about the idea nothing is random, everything is connected. So, so we, can always, we can always take that jigsaw piece add one or two more and find it's telling us something about the environment we care most about. Just a final one. You obviously spend uh, an incredible amount of time outdoors in, in woodland or otherwise. And just to get Britain in particular, we, we don't have that much woodland left. I think 13% of our natural tree cover. I think, I think Britain has ranked around 180th out of 200 countries, as in 200 is the worst and one's the best in terms of biodiversity and the, the state of the ecosystems. We, we know all about plastic on the, on the coastlines and in the oceans being a, a huge problem. As, aside from consumer choices and those sort of changes, is, is the key to protecting the natural world getting in it more, get, going out and sort of being, being in love with it? Is that the key to sort of looking after it? Yeah, I, uh, again, I, I can't claim to, to, to know for certain, but my approach is a lot of my relationship and work with nature is, is poacher turned gamekeeper. When I was a really, really young lad, I, you know, nature was green stuff that got in my way as I was trying to get to the top of something. But, but as, I, as I grew more mature and aware, I was also not the person who particularly, you know, if you, if you wave a finger at somebody and say, you know, protect the environment, psychologists have proven pretty much that you, you can't change human behavior with that, with the word should. So I, I don't know what worked perfectly. I know what worked for me and I've seen it work for others, which is that, if you show people science to look for, it gives them a, a way of building a relationship with either, you know, a broader landscape or an individual part of it. To give you one very practical example of this, there were a pair of yew trees that had grown together over literally hundreds of years on top of one of the hills in, in Sussex that I, I live near. And I've taught people how to read those, the shape of those trees. Um, there are, you know, half a dozen perfect compasses within the shape of the, the tree. But um, nobody considered that tree to be of any cultural significance or, or natural significance. And it was chopped down because they wanted to change the use of the land to graze and the new trees aren't very friendly to grazers. So there was no great consultancy. There was no kind of like, you know, reaching out to the, uh, the community saying, what do you think of these yew trees? But I would have happily have written 10,000 words in support of those trees because I have literally taught hundreds of people how to read trees using those, that pair of yew trees. So, if I, you know, and I'm pretty confident of those people I've, I've taught, you know, they would feel, just don't chop, just don't chop them down. You know, <laughs> again, it, they might, none of us might be able to articulate it perfectly, but there is a relationship there. So instead of sort of saying, don't chop down trees, it's bad, you shouldn't do it, which psychologists have proven doesn't work. If, if um, through my work, I encourage um, as many people as possible to enjoy seeing signs and things, then I think a lot of the positives flow from that without the word should uh, being necessary. For people who want to pick up a copy of How to Read Water and any of your other books, best place to get it via your own website? I'd really encourage people to come and have an explore on naturalnavigator.com. There are loads and loads of free examples and you can search through 
whatever your interest is. It, there's a how to read waterway in, there's stars, there's weather, there's there's uh, plants, there's animals. There's information on the books. Thanks, thanks for mentioning those. And um, I've recently launched uh, an online course. It's um, the Beginner's Guide to Natural Navigation. It's focused on uh, on the land side of things, but it is it is it is all the same discipline as far as I'm concerned. And it, it's a it is. I was a bit sceptical to start with about online courses, uh, but I tried to get the best of the outdoor experience into it. And uh, I think it does do some things that that the um, the outdoor courses don't. It's a it's a more um, uh, it's, it's quite a punchy way of learning. You get straight to it. There's no sort of uh, traveling for two hours to get to the course sort of thing. So, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, quite excited about that. And as a, as a winter project, um, you know, I hope people have some fun with that. All right, it's going to wrap things up for the Tristan Gooley interview. Really cool chat. Check out his feature on how to read water. That's in the forthcoming magazine. It's coming hot off the press in just over 10 days' time. That's issue 259 check out those subs offers up there on the website some fantastic offers going at the moment don't forget of course if you want to get in touch with the show send us a tweet at wavelength mag oh oh, it's oh it's uh it's not the length podcast host ben mundy i think we'll just let that one go to answer phone yes so if you want to get in touch with the show drop us a dm uh, on Instagram at Wavelength Surf Mag, you can send us an email, editor at wavelengthmag.com. And uh, oh, it's Monday again. Just um, should I listen to the answer phone. He's left a few messages. Let's see. Let's see if he's got anything interesting to say. Evans, Evans, I've called you seventeen times. Pick up the phone. Look, mate, I know you're busy, saving the world, writing about blue juice, doing the wavelength stuff, but I. I need to talk. I've got to talk about the podcast, Paul. Pick up. Evans, Monday. We need to talk about the pod. We need to record the pod. I've got so much gold. I've got platinum. I've got bronze. I mean, there's that bit about where I sat in the world champion, Italo Ferreira's wet patch in the booth. That was good, right? And what about when you went down on the beach and talked to Federico Kikas Marais whilst wearing a shirt that had his photo on it. That was embarrassing for you, wasn't it? Let's talk about that. There's so much to talk about, Paul. Hit me back. Let's talk. I love you. Well, sounds like Monday's keen for a new episode of It's Not The Length. It's the Euro Mini Leg COVID Bubble Debrief, and it's coming out on Friday 30th of October, day before Halloween, and the day before the next mag drops. So stay tuned to that new It's Not The Length, myself and Ben Mundy. That episode is dropping real, real soon. In the meantime, enjoy yourselves. It's later than you think. <laughs>